Welcome to Venture Unlocked. I'm your host, Samir Kajan. And this week, we have a really insightful interview with Brendan Wallace, co-founding partner of Fifth Wall. In just a few short years, Fifth Wall has become one of LA's largest venture firms with over $1.2 billion under management. Leveraging their blue-chip corporate real estate LPs and their in-house advisory team, Fifth Wall has built a clear and differentiated model for companies in what they have coined the built world economy. In this show, Brennan gives us an inside look to what makes Fifth Wall so unique in this space and how they think about building structural advantages in investing. Without any more delay, let's get into the episode to hear all of this and more. Brendan, uh, so great to have you on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Just to set some context, you know, I think you have one of the most unique career journeys leading into venture. Let's walk through your career and what really inspired Fifth Wall when you started. You know, I actually came from banking, so I guess it's fitting that we're on a, a banking podcast. I graduated Princeton, and I always had a passion for real estate and the built environment and urban economics, and so. I actually wrote my senior thesis at Princeton on that. I graduated, went to work in real estate investment banking at Goldman, and then I was in CMBS at Goldman. So I was there kind of in 04, 05, 06. You can think about that as like the eye of the storm, kind of almost pre-capital markets crisis. And it was just an incredibly unique experience. Then I went over to Blackstone. I was in real estate private equity at Blackstone. And then the financial crisis actually happened. And it seemed like a good time to go to business school. So I went to Stanford where I kind of just was in the Silicon Valley tech ecosystem and I, I caught the bug like many people and, you know, started my first company completely outside of real estate, uh, which was a company called Identified and grew that, raised a few rounds of venture capital and sold that to Workday, uh, then was involved in starting another tech company called Cabify, which like the Uber, the Lyft of Latin America. And so, you know, by a relatively early age, I had had this kind of hybrid experience in two domains that rarely overlap in careers, which is real estate as an industry and traditional real estate capital markets, and then technology and venture and entrepreneurship. In some ways, that's kind of the setting or that's kind of the vantage point I was sitting in when uh, I launched Fifth Wall. It was a rare combination of skill sets. You and I met really early in the uh, the formation of Fifth Wall. And what really struck me about our conversation is that you were looking at building a firm in a very different way than most first-time venture funds or emerging funds. What was the vision of the firm for Fifth Wall when you started? So it's interesting because the vision has, in some ways, defined itself more clearly over time. I think when I first spoke to you, the vision was more clear around what it wasn't. And the reason I say that is that I had actually spent some time as I was figuring out what to do next and what company to start next, meeting with a lot of venture funds, not with the intent of ever starting a venture fund, actually, but just to hear their thoughts on the market. And as I was meeting with them, I, I had this very distinct impression. I was like, this is a bad business, <laughs> these guys' business, because there's no alpha, right? Like, Basically, what happens is episodically, these firms raise monoline funds. It feels like it, it, back in the day when, when wildcatting was a thing in the oil and gas industry, basically what you had was a whole bunch of people threw down wells, some struck oil, some most didn't, and then you had survivorship bias, meaning the people that did find oil would say, oh, only I know how to find oil, so give me more money and I will find more oil. But in fact, 
they were no more likely than the next person to find oil again. And I was like, this whole industry, right, with probably a few exceptions in venture, is wildcatting. You have a bunch of undifferentiated generalist funds of people that used to be entrepreneurs that are very smart, that are speculating on what the market is going to adopt, whether that's from an enterprise perspective or a consumer perspective. But there's no repeatable alpha here, meaning some get lucky, some don't, and there's survivorship bias. And then the firms that have some winners in their portfolio raise more money until ultimately, statistically, it's revealed that they don't have any alpha. And to me, that felt so inconsistent with my experience at a firm like Blackstone, where there clearly was alpha, and that alpha was repeatable and manufacturable and defensible. And so it actually changed my vision. I was like, what if you could build a venture capital fund where you had defensible, repeatable alpha in your investment strategy? How would you engineer that? Because it, it didn't seem that hard to generate better returns than most of the generalist funds because I couldn't identify the alpha. And that's when I kind of drew on the experience that I'd had in real estate. And I can walk you through the original vision. It was, there's this massive category of venture that there's no institutional venture funds in, which is real estate technology. Real estate is 13% of the US economy. It's the largest industry. It's the largest asset class. It's the largest capital market. And yet there's no venture capital funds focused here. And at the time, there were more venture capital funds focused on cannabis and cannabis tech. And I was like, that, that just doesn't make sense. So it was like big opportunity there. And then secondly, I was like, well, what if I could put the largest customers of the very technologies that I was investing in as LPs in my fund? So what if I went to the largest owners and operators and developers of real estate as LPs and got them to invest in a fund. Well, then I would have all this asymmetric information, all these informational advantages around which companies to invest in, getting the technologies that I invest in to be adopted by their largest customers. I guess a long way of saying, Samir, I wouldn't have to speculate. I, I would actually know the outcomes. I would rig the deck before I ever invested. And I was like, well, that's interesting that I hadn't seen another firm do that. And that was the genesis of Fifth Wall. That's how we built it. We built the first fund that was a consortium venture capital fund of the largest users, the largest customers, the largest partners of the very technologies that we were investing in. And that was just unique at the time. I want to double click on something you mentioned just now, and that is partnering with corporates and having them come in as strategic LPs. The first fund was, I think, a little over 200, 212 million to be exact, which, as you know, is a very, very large first time fund. And certainly from my perspective, very rare for somebody not to have come from an existing VC shop to raise a fund of that size. How was that first fundraise? So maybe I'll answer that question in two ways, because we have two different LP constituencies. We have our corporate LPs and we have our financial LPs. And the nature and the tone and the intent of the questions I would get asked were different for each audience. So for corporates, I think what the issue wasn't the size of the fund. The issue was more of a philosophical question around, do we run our own venture capital funds? Like We do believe that technology and real estate are colliding and we need to have a point of view on it and we need to adopt new technologies, but should we start our own funds? And so I think what we got in our first fund, which we raised in 2017, we got seven 
U.S. Uh, strategic owner-operator developers of real estate. So it was CBRE, big brokerage, Prologis, big industrial REIT, Lennar, uh, the largest home builder, Heinz, one of the largest office owners, host hotels, and equity residential and multifamily and may search and retail. So kind of each major food group, we got one. And the characteristic of those LPs were they were corporate LPs that had the self-awareness to know that building a, a corporate venture capital fund as a real estate firm is nearly impossible and unlikely to go well. And in some cases, they had already, to some extent, failed at it. So the kinds of questions uh, I would get asked, and the whole reason they invested was an awareness that one, tech was important, and two, doing it yourself was very hard and unlikely to be successful. And so now here's an entrepreneur sitting in front of you telling you he's going to build a venture capital fund that's a consortium of owners that is going to do what you would intend to do with your own corporate fund. And I think that's largely why we were successful. On the financial side, the questions were, I'd say, surprising for a different reason. I would get asked questions like, is real estate tech a big category? Which obviously today feels like a ridiculous question. Um, but at the time, there was no ecosystem. You have to remember like prop tech, this kind of phraseology that's used today and real estate tech and built world tech, there was no institutional funds. So there was nothing to point to. So we get asked things like, hey, is, this, is there enough deals to do here? And my response was probably more macroeconomic at the time. I was like, yeah, the real estate industry is the largest industry in the US. It's 13% of the economy. I think there'll be enough deals to do because it's an industry that has largely been under-technologized. It's been a lagger around adopting tech. And it's clearly happening. And so there, I think there was some concern. And I was like, we are going to spend $212 million on great businesses very, very quickly. This space is growing too fast. And you've seen it now over the last three years, right? That real estate tech is arguably, I'd say, probably today, the biggest category of venture, right, by industry. There's probably been more unicorns minted out of this space on the consumer and enterprise side than any other category. And the amount of investment into the category, I think, has 8 x um, So you're talking about years where north of $10 billion goes into the category. So this wasn't as visible in 2017. Um, and so we get asked a lot of questions around market size. The timing of it, to your last question, it happened in... I would say about nine months it took us to raise the two. We were originally targeting 150, and then we increased it to 200, and then we went a little over the, the, the target. It did start more modest in the ambition, but I think the demand just grew because we were the first institutional fund in the space. Yeah, you spoke about having two types of LPs, the strategic corporates and then the purely financial investors. And sometimes the thing that is tough to grapple with is that they do have different primary objectives at times. And how do you manage both within the same pool of capital? And I'm curious, as you went through your raise, did you get a lot of questions from the financial investors? Was there any reluctance of coming in with so much strategic money alongside them? And do you think in any way it impeded the progress of getting those financial investors in? Yes, I would say I got questions on it. I don't think it impeded us. And I think it's because I had a very clear view in my narrative to financial LPs. Because the, the obvious question one might ask me is, why even bother to have financial LPs in your fund, right? Why not just have the entire fund 
comprised of corporate LPs because we charge the same fees to our corporate LPs as our financial LPs. And so I obviously get a lot more value out of a major owner of real estate from a distribution perspective than a financial LP. And what I would say to financial LPs is I was like, look, 15 years ago, corporate venture capital as a percent of all venture capital dollars, it was less than, I think it was around 25%, right? So if you took all dollars that go into emerging new companies, corporates represented about a quarter of it. Today, that number is closer to 50%. So what that means is that corporates are buying up more of the equity of fast-growing companies than ever before, and the number is growing. My guess is within 10 years, that number is probably two-thirds. So the majority, the majority of capital going into early-stage businesses is not coming from private, independently managed venture capital funds, as most people think. In fact, it's coming more and more from corporates. The challenge, if you're a financial investor, is that you have no way of piggybacking into those deals, right? Into all that alpha that's created. The benefits of corporate venture capital, I think everyone knows. You have, in many cases, the largest, most strategic partners investing into businesses. The drawbacks are also pretty obvious to people that corporates sometimes have misaligned incentives and they're slower and they're more bureaucratic and it's more challenged to hire great investors into them. I think people get the continuum of upside and downside that's associated with corporate venture capital funds. What I was proposing is I said, look, I'm going to have all the benefits of a corporate, the distribution, the relationship, the informational advantages, except I'm totally independent. I charge the same fees to my corporates. They don't sit on my board. They don't own the management company. They don't own any of the GP. They don't sit on the investment committee. I'm going to manage my funds to generate the strongest return possible. And you, the financial LP, can piggyback alongside that. And you have no other conduit to do so. There's no other platform that would allow you to do so. That narrative was compelling. I think it explains why about 50% of our first fund was financial LPs. And now, as obviously Fifth Wall has grown, and I think we have, I think, probably one of the most top tier list of now financial LPs from like, I'd say most of the major sovereigns now, many of the major US pensions are now invested with us. Because of that, we offered them a product they couldn't buy elsewhere, which is the opportunity to co-invest alongside this growing juggernaut of corporate venture capital dollars that are pouring into the space. Now, there's nothing novel about corporate VC stemming back to the Intel Capitals and several hundred corporates have spun up their own internal investing arms. Um, but in a case where a corporate is investing as an LP into a fund, I've always wondered from a GP's perspective, at least, how do you manage these groups so that you're consistently adding value to the corporate, both from a performance standpoint, a strategic standpoint, and then levering everything that they can bring to the table to add value to the portfolio companies? I think about our business as having three constituencies. And so we, we talked about one of them already, which is the financial LPs. So again, what I'm offering them is the ability to co-invest alongside all this strategic value that comes with corporate venture. So get the benefits of it without the drawbacks. So talk about the second constituency, which is the corporates themselves. And when you think about those corporates and why they're investing, you have to be very clear-eyed and very self-aware around why they are investing. So when a corporate, when a major hotel owner, when Marriott makes an investment in Fifth Ball, I need to be aware that 
if I 5X that commitment, that is not going to materially move their business. That is not the, the entirety of their reason for investing in fifth wall. What they are seeking is strong financial return, but I would argue equally as important is the strategic value, the insight, the learning, access to the new economy, to the innovation economy that they typically struggle to access. So what I'm offering them is one, on the investment side, as an independent venture capital fund, I can just simply hire and motivate and incentivize better investors than a corporate can, right? Many corporates are now recognizing this. And I think because of this, the number of corporates that now have invested in Fifth Wall's many funds has grown from seven in our first fund from one country to we have 60 corporate LPs now from 14 countries. So the consortium has just grown as that self-awareness has grown on their side. But then to deliver that strategic value, you have to build and mechanize and almost industrialize how do you convey strategic value to them? The benefit that a firm like Fifth Wall has in doing that is that if you're an office owner in Chicago or London or Tokyo, your pain points and your questions and your opportunities around technology and innovation tend not to be dissimilar. They tend to be the same. And as a result, our ability then to say, this is how you should be thinking about remote monitoring and access control, and parking technology, and leasing and asset management technology. We almost have what I would call intellectual economies of scale, right? Because we are providing the same insight to owners that are largely doing the same thing, oftentimes just in different geographies or with different size businesses. So in some ways, you can almost think of Fifth Wall as like a investment bank with an equity research arm in the sense that we are providing that content and that access to them in, I think, increasingly efficient and more defensible ways that actually have real network effects. Now let's talk about the third constituency, which is the portfolio companies that we're investing in. So to the portfolio companies, I think it's a little more obvious. Like What I offer is that today I can go to any entrepreneur who is selling into the real estate industry and say, if I invest in your business, I can open the doors instantly, very quickly, in, I'd say now, an increasingly efficient process to 60 of the largest owners in real estate. And real estate is an industry that has what I would call kingmaker dynamics, meaning that when you get a handful of large institutional real estate owners to adopt the technology, very quickly, that technology becomes the, the standard. And it's very easy to grow and leverage that momentum to cascade now to the whole industry. And increasingly, a large portion of the whole real estate industry is invested in Fifth Wall. So we actually, in some ways, can arbitrate which companies can become successful because we can open all those doors instantly for them. So the way our team is structured is we have our investment teams, right? That, that obviously seek out and find and support great businesses. We have our advisory team that supports our strategic LPs around getting them access to information and companies at larger and larger scale now across many products and many geographies. And then we have our value creation team that has literally industrialized the process of distributing these technologies. And so for entrepreneurs, that's very attractive because no other venture fund can say, if you sell to the real estate industry, I'm a one-stop shop, 
right? You, you don't need to have another real estate firm or venture fund invest. I can instantly play kingmaker for you. That's very, very attractive for them. Let's fast forward to today. You've raised two main funds totaling $700 million. You have a retail fund. As a firm whose main thesis is the built economy and real estate, why launch these different products? And maybe you can speak uh, more specifically to the sustainability effort. Maybe I'll answer the question more philosophically, and then I'll talk about the specific products, right? So, you know, most venture capital funds are struck with this just inherent paradox, um, which again, I think comes from the fact that there's not a lot of repeatable alpha in most venture capital funds, which is the bigger you get, the harder it is to generate returns. I think every venture capital fund has struggled with this. Um, And again, it's not dissimilar from what happened in wildcatting. It's easy to find one well. It's a lot harder to repeatedly find 50 wells. So a lot of funds, as they get bigger, their returns diminish and LPs have recognized this. I think what's different about Fifth Wall is that our business actually just intuitively gets better as we have more products and more corporate LPs. Why? Because we have more touch points to work with our alpha source, which is these large real estate corporates, and we have more distribution to offer our portfolio companies, and we have more intelligence over which companies to invest in. Meaning, if Fifth Wall could logically grow to represent 100% of the real estate industry, I would argue we would have better alpha than we do today, right? So in some ways, the way we engineered our firm is just fundamentally different. We get better as we get bigger because we get these network effects. We get these intellectual economies of scale. We get these wider and broader distribution lanes for our portfolio companies. Most funds just get more money to invest, right? And that just means it's harder to generate returns. So the reason we've scaled is that our alpha seems to be getting stronger. Obviously, the financial performance of our fund one was fantastic. The performance of our fund two uh, equally looks fantastic. And we're getting better at helping our portfolio companies and we're getting more intelligence. So this model is working at bigger and bigger scale. The reason we've launched different products alongside you know, what our core was, which was North American real estate tech, is that this convergence, if you think about what Fifth Wall does as we are monetizing as kind of the biggest, most active investor in real estate tech, we are monetizing this secular collision between real estate as an industry and technology as an industry. And one feature of that is North American real estate tech, where we've done many of our deals like Open Door and VTS and Clutter and Blend out of that is intuitive to a lot of people why those things are kind of features of this collision between real estate and tech. What's a little less obvious is that the collision of real estate and tech has orthogonal collisions, orthogonal tectonic plates colliding with it. So for example, real estate and technology and commerce are colliding, right? You open the newspaper every day and you read about retail disruption, how much the retail real estate industry and the retail industry itself is changing and how e-commerce and logistics and last mile delivery and ghost kitchens are all colliding with this in profound, complicated ways. And so what we recognized is we said, retail real estate owners have idiosyncratic needs. What they're actually looking to do is invest in emerging new occupiers of space. 
the occupiers of space that we think are going to represent the future of the retail environment. That means brands, that means uh, healthcare concepts that are obviously have brick and mortar stores, that means logistics businesses, that means food delivery businesses, but are, they are businesses that are U.S. commerce activity that are happening in physical space. That's our retail fund. Our sustainability fund is, again, a, another orthogonal collision between real estate as an industry, technology as an industry, and sustainability as a mandate, right? And the real estate industry is the single most culpable industry in climate change, counterintuitive fact to a lot of people contributes more CO2 to the environment than the automotive industry, than the manufacturing industry. It's the single largest contributor to climate change. And so unsurprisingly, uh, regulators and capital markets and tenants have been increasingly pressuring the real estate industry to decarbonize. And technology is in many ways the answer, whether that's alternative energy or hardware, like smart building systems technology, materials tech. And so there's a lot that real estate owners are obviously going to spend on decarbonizing their industry. And there's more, obviously. There's geographic collisions. So this collision between real estate and tech in the, in the U.S. and North America, it's happening in South America, it's happening in Europe, it's happening in Asia, and it's happening in adjacent industries, right? It's happening in infrastructure, it's happening in transportation. All of it speaks to what I think is the unique feature of Fifth Wall, which is this highly repeatable alpha model we've engineered, which gets better as we have bigger scale and bigger distribution. Yeah, I find it so fascinating to hear you walk through the model. Conventional wisdom, of course, in venture suggests that there is some type of inverse relationship between fund size and performance, and maybe even more amplified when there's multiple fund products under one roof. How at Fifth Wall do you ensure that that old adage does not hold true but in fact, with scale, with multiple fund products, you're actually improving the returned model for your limited partners. I do something very different than I think most founders of venture funds do. I spend my time thinking about how Fifth Wall can repeatably industrially create alpha for portfolio companies. And I think about that in aggregate. So I think about building systems and processes and operations that can mechanize all of these advantages we've engineered for the firm to repeatably benefit our portfolio companies, which in turn generate stronger and stronger returns for our LPs across more and more products. I think if you asked most VCs how they spend their time, they spend their time sweating over getting into the next deal, right? And don't get me wrong, that's very important, but it's very artisanal, right? It is not an industrial process that doesn't scale. And so that is inherently the limitation that most venture funds face, which is you have five to eight people that artisanally curate deals. And as they try to get bigger and do more, they rapidly realize they don't scale and that it's very hard to scale and that venture doesn't scale. Um, because we always built Fifth Wall with the idea of building an alpha machine, right? Where we would have these network effects or we would have these economies of scale. I spend my time thinking about those systems and making sure that I'm bringing in the right talent to identify the best investments and I'm bringing in the right support for our portfolio companies. And I'm retaining my strategic LPs for longer and longer and more and more products. And I think you've seen that just in our growth, right? 
I don't know, maybe you do, I don't know many venture funds that, that, that have grown at our pace and maintained actually improving returns across our funds. That, that's just odd and I think atypical of most venture capital. But again, it comes from conceptualizing our firm fundamentally differently than how most venture capital funds conceptualize themselves. It's kind of like comparing someone who is manufacturing something to someone that is an artisan. They're just, they're, they're different. And so with someone that is industrially manufacturing something, it makes sense that they would have better performance, better returns, better margins as they get bigger, as they're in more geographies, as they're in more products. It does not make sense that for an artisan, they would get better as they get bigger. That kind of allegorically explains, I think, that distinction. I think it's a great segue into what I think is probably the most critical part of your business, and that being the team itself. And I'd be really curious on your thoughts on how do you make sure you harmonize the different pieces, in your case, the investment side, the operations side, and the advisory side to consistently add value to both your portfolio companies and your LPs? It's actually very different, different answers for each one of those components. So for the investment side, so for all of our investment teams, for the professionals that are leading, identifying, sourcing, leading, identifying, executing, and supporting investments into fast-growing technology or technology-enabled businesses, we don't look uh, that different than other venture funds. I think one of the big advantages we have is that because of our growth, we attract people that are stuck at traditional venture funds. A lot of venture funds are you know, very top heavy. There's people that have been there for years. The last time they you know, worked in an entrepreneurial environment was like 20, 25 years ago, and now they're just raising monoline funds. But right underneath those people are, I'd say, a, a younger generation of really talented, really entrepreneurial investors that I think don't get the support they need in these artisanal venture shops. And so we've been able to very effectively hire and incentivize and attract those kinds of investors to fifth ball. And I think, you know, our portfolio kind of speaks for itself. On the advisory side, so supporting our corporate LPs, um, we've been able to do something similar, but different with a different skill set. So we've largely gone to consulting and banking. And I've said there's fantastic consultants at McKinsey and Bain and BCG, and I would say financial services professionals at major investment banks. And what are they in the business of doing? Supporting corporates. Except unlike at Fifth Wall, they don't have any upside, right? They provide that support and they get paid a fee for service. At Fifth Wall, we can offer them upside in the very technologies they are helping those corporates adopt. And that alignment of incentives obviously allows me to attract the best people. So I would argue Fifth Wall has a better consulting team than the best teams at McKinsey for no other reason than we can attract them with better incentivization. On the value creation side, which is helping our portfolio companies, there are teams like this at other venture funds but it tends to be pretty undifferentiated, right? Like usually what they're doing is they're helping you hire an engineer or they're showing up to your board meeting or they're helping you identify and outsource CFO, but they're fairly generic, undifferentiated, you know, sources of support. 
Not that they're not important. They're just not very differentiated among the VCs. At Fifth Wall, what we do is so differentiated. Like there's just no other fund that can sit down with an entrepreneur and say, if I invest in your company on Tuesday, by Wednesday morning, I will have your product in front of 60 of the largest institutional owners, the largest partners you could ever get. I will have it in front of them. And I can do that efficiently. And I've done that many times before, and I'm very good at it. And in fact, I know what they all want. Right. So that is almost like a business development sales support team that we have in house that we leverage across all of our portfolio companies. So they're very different teams. And again, it, it, it comes from, like, I keep coming back to this. We think about manufacturing alpha, right? The reason those teams look different, the reason I talk about bringing on better talent is because I'm thinking about how to mechanize to industrially create alpha. And that means not looking at building your teams the way other venture funds have. When I started Fifth Wall, I asked every GP out there for advice and how they built their teams and how they built their systems. And then I realized, I was like, these are not good operators. They might be good investors, but they don't know how to operate a business. Like the actual business of venture capital is operated actually quite poorly, even in some of the best venture capital funds. And if we could operate more like a startup with industrial scale and constantly improving processes, and become a magnet for these different cohorts of talent, that's repeatable alpha. No long, I'm no longer wildcatting, right? I'm now building a machine that just generates return, generates value for strategic corporate investors, and delivers a differentiated, identifiable advantage to portfolio companies. And I think that's largely what we've done. Through the course of this conversation, Brendan, it's very clear that you're one of the most atypical VCs out there in the way you think about things and certainly how you've constructed the firm over the years. And I was racking my brain of, are there other VC firms that in some way approximate you? The only one I could think of is Andreessen, who, you know, when they created back in 2009, had a very different model. From your perspective, is there a firm out there that you've modeled yourself after? And it doesn't have to be VC. It could be private equity. It could be anyone in the alternative investment world. Is there anyone out there? And you know, what do you think the comps are for Fifth Wall? I haven't seen it in venture, to be honest. I have seen it in other asset management classes, which is why they have been able to scale, right? There's no question that Blackstone and TPG and Apollo and KKR have been able to scale their asset management businesses and repeatably generate alpha across multiple products. And it appears that that alpha becomes stronger and more defensible as the firms get bigger. That never happens in venture. Um, I don't want to talk specifically about any venture capital funds, but point me to a venture capital fund and show me how they've scaled and then show me their returns. And it always appears to get worse. So no, I don't think that there is a particular comp for it. And to some extent, I'd almost rather put up an advertisement, like use, use my answer to that question to put up an advertisement for any VCs that are out there that recognize this and say, look, if, if you have a unique idea around a sector-specific strategy that would benefit from corporates and the infrastructure we build, we can go build that, right? We know how to go build that. And, you know, give me a call. <laughs> I'd love to actually figure out how to build more adjacencies that cement our position of capturing all this alpha. 
But no, I, 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 to be honest, have not been able to look to the venture capital industry for differentiation. And, you know, in, in, in many respects, obviously, we are a Los Angeles-based venture capital fund, um, technically, even within sector-specific funds and even within the generalist funds. There's just, there's not a lot of funds that, that, that function like us and so repeatedly do this. Let's look in the crystal ball a little bit. And if we were having this conversation 10 years from now, what does Fifth Wall look like? What I'd like the firm to develop into is I'd like to lean into this model of leveraging corporates, these kind of kingmaker corporates at bigger scale across more products and increasingly open my funds to more and more financial LPs so that they can piggyback off this secular collision between corporate venture capital and innovation. So maybe a better way of saying that is I believe that more and more corporates are going to be, quote, doing venture 10 years from now. And I would like to absorb the majority of that market share across as many industries as possible, because I believe that's an alpha generator. The second thing that I'd like to do is open my funds more to financial LPs. All of our funds have uh, been consistently oversubscribed from financial LPs. And I'd like to figure out ways to further enfranchise financial LPs to say, as opposed to putting my money in wildcatting, can I put my money into a machine, right? Across many different products, many different geographies, many different features of this secular collision between some industry, real estate, agriculture, transportation, manufacturing, uh, construction, and innovation and technology. And does Fifth Wall have a product in that geography for me? So call that a, a a scaled asset manager. I can't think of a comp, unfortunately. I can't think of anyone that is doing that today um, or has that vision today, but that enables financial LPs to capture the upside that's inherent in this collision between major industries and the innovation economy. One last question, and your focus is really around this secular prop tech and real estate in general and across you know, these different products that all seem to be highly synergistic. We're in a pandemic right now, um, which appears to be one that's going to last for some time. Real estate, you know, at least the conventional wisdom is real estate will have some difficult times ahead. How do you manage through working in a single sector focus that is going through potentially a downturn? Obviously, the industry is huge, so I don't want to understate that. But do sector-specific strategies have more vulnerabilities? And if so, what are the things that a manager should think about or what do you think about? I'd probably answer it in two different ways. One, we're not just in the collision of real estate and tech. We just talked about, obviously, our retail and consumer fund and our sustainability fund, right? So that it's not just purely real estate tech in North America anymore, obviously, at our scale. The second thing is that while that seems like, yeah, well, maybe real estate owners will just stop doing innovation. I think if you reflect on that conclusion for like more than 30 seconds, you'll realize that's obviously not what's going to happen. I think any real estate CEO who concludes from this crisis and the dislocation, the kind of ensuing dislocation of the real estate industry, that they don't need to be as active in innovation and technology, they're not going to be CEO of a real estate company for very long, probably with good reason, right? Their board will just fire them 
So it's not that there won't be a lot of churn. It's that the wind is at our back as it relates to like real estate corporates having to do more, having a bigger hand to play in the technology world, in the innovation economy. So we're seeing that in our corporate LP base, meaning I think real estate corporates are going to do more and more with respect to technology. I think at the same time, there's probably another feature that's unique, which is this crisis and the dislocation in venture capital markets and broadly all capital markets is revealing that a lot of the alpha that was perceived in other asset managers was not alpha, was survivorship bias and wildcatting. And so what I think at the same time this will do to financial LPs is it will more acutely force them to grapple with what is the alpha in this manager that I've invested in? Can I really pinpoint it? They have great returns historically. Their last two funds have had you know, two lucky winners in them. But is that repeatable? And I think that is a net tailwind for a firm like Fifthwall that's built more as an industrial asset manager to generate alpha. Because I think we just have a clearer, uh, actual, real, honest answer to how we can generate alpha in any market cycle. Because the dependence of fast-growing technology companies on industry partners, industry customers, that is not going to change, right? That is not going to get disrupted. What is not going to happen is that emerging real estate technology companies or climate tech companies or retail and logistics businesses or emerging retail startups are going to become less dependent on corporates for their success. That is not a conclusion of this crisis. If anything, it probably is becoming more obvious, uh, that dependency. So I think as financial LPs increasingly recognize that our distinctive feature, our salient alpha advantage, I think will become more attractive over time. We're going to end with a quick heat check and effectively a lightning round with a few quick questions. Um, We'll start off with a single piece of advice you give an emerging manager. You just started amazingly three years ago. It feels like much, much longer. What is that piece of advice you'd give somebody that's starting a fund today? It goes back to a lot of what our conversation has touched on, which I think is be very self-aware around what you're trying to build. If you're trying to build something artisanal, keep it small and keep it bespoke and generate your returns that way, but recognize that. And if you want to build something industrial and you want to mechanize alpha, you have to think at bigger and bigger scale. I think the trap that many asset management entrepreneurs and fund managers get into is they are artisanal, but they are trying to think industrially. And that's where returns diminish. I guess what I'm saying is be self-aware around what you're trying to do. I think we've always been self-aware. I've always worn that as kind of fifth walls mantle in terms of what we're building. And I think that's to our benefit. And I think both work. You have to constantly maintain that self-awareness. You've had so many different experiences from an entrepreneur to working at a large PE firm to now running Fifth Wall. What is the biggest career mistake you've ever made and what did you learn from it? Because it touches on our conversation, I'll mention something that is very germane to asset management and venture capital asset management. When I first started Fifth Wall, I, like I said, did a survey of all of the GPs that I thought were great GPs, how they ran their businesses and 
I tried to apply those insights to fifth wall. And in some ways, because I had the self-awareness to know that we were building something different, but yet I was using models that were more germane to a artisanal uh, venture capital firm. They just weren't appropriate. And it probably took us 18 months to realize that, no, that's not what we're doing, right? We are building more of a machine and we need to think about having interchangeable parts and repeatable processes, not thinking about a lot of the things and processes that smaller venture capital asset managers um, think about. And so there was a dissonance, I would say, in the early days between our operations, which probably resembled more of the smaller, slower growing asset venture capital asset managers out there and what we've evolved into. And I think if um, we had adopted some of the processes that we now have, we would have been able to scale and probably generate even faster growth and more value for LPs um, even sooner than we have. So probably assumed that firms that existed had figured it out. And I wasn't as clear-eyed as I should have been around the fact that we are different. Uh, We are a different animal. Is there an investor out there that you really admire, you aspire toward, again, multi-dimensional in in nature, and certainly doesn't have to be from any given sector, but is there somebody that you've looked at and said, this is who I aspire to be? I love what Blackstone has built. I think what, and I love what, you know, many of the multi-product, private equity-driven, large asset managers have built. There's too many to name. And I think what they built is, They built a machine to acquire talent and have capital structure and financing advantages at bigger and bigger scale across more and more products, across more geographies. And they were able to industrially build products that generate very, very strong returns. You look at Blackstone and they started as a private equity fund and the real estate group, actually where I worked, rapidly became you know, one of the biggest components of their business and one of their strongest return generators. And today they now have many. And I just think that is really interesting to understand how they did that. Now, I think the world has changed since those asset managers built themselves because I think they were built with more financial engineering at their core. And today I think the next great asset managers are going to be built with tech and venture and kind of the innovation economy at their core. But I do think there's a lot of lessons and just instructive insights around how you build brand, how you uh, acquire talent and develop and motivate that talent, and how you build highly synergistic products with one another that learn and benefit from the already existing products that you do have. And in many ways, I do try to emulate that as we're building Fifth Wall. Well, great, Brendan. This has been such a fun and insightful conversation. I wanted to appreciate you again for the uh, the long partnership, being on the show, and certainly really, really look forward to uh, tracking the future of Fifth Wall. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me on. and I've loved the relationship as well. And yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to our episode with Brendan. To learn more about him, Fifth Wall and their secrets in building a great firm, please be sure to go to Apple Podcasts where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please rate and review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. 